I think people come to Zen with some romantic notions about enlightenment and awakening. And it's very exciting. There's almost always a honeymoon period when we first begin. And then uh, we start to realize, at least the way I teach Zen, that it's a way of life rather than some kind of gateway to uh, being happy all the time. And, and I think people don't really uh, understand that at the beginning. And then when they come to understand it, the excitement fades away. Uh, so the people who persist are a very unusual small group of people in my experience. And they've kind of come to understand this way of life aspect of Zen training rather than uh, having a kind of meditation experience that leads to some outcome that's permanent. Melissa Mjosen-Blacker, Roshi, is a guiding teacher of Boundless Way Zen, a multi-lineage school of Zen Buddhism with practice sanghas in New England, New York, and Copenhagen, Denmark. She began studying Zen in 1981 and joined the Center for Mindfulness, founded by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester in 1993. There, she worked as a member of the mindfulness-based stress reduction teaching staff the associate director of the Stress Reduction Clinic, and a director of professional training programs until 2012. Melissa was ordained a Soto Zen priest in 2004 and received Dharma transmission from James Ford Roshi in 2006 and Inka Shomei in 2010. She is widely published and co-editor of the Book of Mu, Essential Writings of Zen's Most Important Koan. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency, and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Melissa, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about why you started practicing. What was, what drove you to? to do all of this practice work? Well, you know, I was a very curious child and wasn't raised in any kind of religious tradition, but I had a lot of experiences when I was young that didn't make any sense to me. And when I tried to talk to my parents or other adults about them, uh, they didn't seem to know what I was talking about. So I started reading when I was a teenager everything I could about mysticism and religion. And when I was in uh, university, I took a class as a freshman called Emptiness. And that was an interesting class. It was just a seminar for freshmen. There were 12 people in it and a really amazing teacher who didn't last very long at the university. Hmm. Uh, And he taught us about Buddhism and Taoism. And I was fascinated by that. So I started focusing a little bit more of my study and reading on Buddhism But it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I met my first Zen teacher. And 
every word out of his mouth really resonated with me. So I started practicing then and really never let up uh, all these years. I'm now 64 years old and have been practicing for many decades and just feel that Zen is really my home spiritually. And every time I have any kind of experience, uh, Zen always has a way of framing what's happening for me. So, uh, so really, it is truly my spiritual home. So you've had ups and downs over the years with practice, as, as we all have. And I'm wondering why you stayed with it. Like what, you know, we've all seen so many people come and they're so excited. And then the practice um, isn't enough for them or, or something isn't enough and they, they fade away. I'm yeah. just wondering if you can say why you think you stayed and what you think it is that, that causes people to, to fade away. Yeah, you know, I'll start with what causes people to fade away. I think people come to Zen with some romantic notions about enlightenment and awakening. And it's very exciting. There's almost always a honeymoon period when we first begin. And then uh, we start to realize, at least the way I teach Zen, that it's a way of life rather than some kind of gateway to uh, being happy all the time. And, And I think people don't really uh, understand that at the beginning. And then when they come to understand it, the excitement fades away. Uh, So the people who persist are a very unusual small group of people in my experience. And they've kind of come to understand this way of life aspect of Zen training, rather than uh, having a kind of meditation experience that leads to some outcome that's permanent. So, So I always say Zen isn't for everybody. It's definitely been for me. And even though I've trained in other forms of Buddhist practice and actually other forms of meditative practice, I keep coming back to Zen, especially in the way that Zen helps with uh, the sometimes the contrast between dualistic thinking and non-duality, uh, bringing them both together into one kind of life experience. It's always felt really satisfying to me. And you're right, I've had some ups and downs. There was a big period of time. Well, it wasn't that long. It was just a few months when I left my first teacher and before I met my second teacher where I I kind of sampled all kinds of other forms of Buddhist practice and none of them really touched my heart the way Zen practiced it. And when I met my second teacher who was very different from my first teacher in personality and even in the direction of his teaching, I, uh, I just once again, felt at home in the forms and in the way that Zen was taught and the way I understood it. Uh, so so I, I really think it's, it's not a, a message that's going to ever be very popular. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a form of teaching that, um, that I think appeals to a very particular kind of person. So much of the conversation around meditation is about, um, you know, just having a, a clear mind or, or, um, and, but a way of life. What do you mean by that? Well, right. I I think that having a clear mind is, is some kind of an outcome oriented approach to meditation, which is really popular in the world right now. Uh, if I meditate, I'm going to 
paths. And then there's a long list, you know, I'll be healthier, I'll be happier, I'll have a clear mind, I won't have any problems. The reality that I experience on a daily basis is pretty much the same as I think what the Buddha experienced 2,600 years ago, that suffering happens on a daily basis. Everybody, every human being I've ever met is um, dissatisfied to some degree with the way things are. And sometimes that can get really extreme, you know, and we're, I think we're experiencing it now in the world with politics and climate change and all the terrible things that are happening everywhere. Uh, I get to travel quite a bit and I haven't found any difference between what's happening to us in the United States and what's happening elsewhere in the world. People are really struggling. Uh, and, and I also look back at history and don't think it's even that different than it's been before. So this uh, pervasive sense that, that life is really challenging is something that most human beings want to escape. You know, our, our brains are made in such a way that uh, we're attracted towards what's positive and where we want to run away from what's negative. So in Zen practice, there's really, I, I sometimes think of it as a technology uh, where we're instructed to sit still, which is really unusual in uh, all meditative practices, that sitting still without moving, that kind of creates a framework or, or a, 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 a way of holding this really chaotic, difficult mind, uh, heart that we're all saddled with. And we get to find out what happens when we don't run away from our experience. And when we just stay with it, when we learn to really stay present. So what that means is that when things are going really well and we're having a good time, we can experience that fully. It becomes something that, uh, that we can really taste and touch and know intimately. And then when things are difficult, we can bear some of the difficulty until it inevitably changes into something else. So there's kind of a, um, a discipline of staying present that's part of Zen instruction that's really uh, counter to what most of us learn when we're growing up. You know, just run for the good stuff and forget the bad stuff. And, and, and I, so I, that's one of the things I love about it, that, that you know, every single thing that we encounter is demonstrating the teachings or demonstrating the way reality is. And there are no exceptions to that. We can't say that, you know, only the pretty flowers and the beautiful sunlight today are doing it. It's, it's every single thing we encounter, the garbage in the street and the noise of traffic, everything is it. So, um, so in that sense, you know, it's a way of life because we're learning how to be with things as they are. And, uh, and not run away and not uh, run towards, not run away from what we don't like and not run towards what we like, but allow things to come and go. And that's the recipe for uh, what we call in Buddhism equanimity, which is not a solid steady state. It's, uh, it's a, a, a kind of like a, a, a seesaw. You can't see me, but my hands are going up and down right now. Um, it, it's uh, it's a, a, a moving, um, dynamic living. It's a way of living that's uh, that's not stuck or um, or frozen, but uh, a, a really, really alive. And so, so that's what I mean by a way of life. So we learn how to live 
in this constant changing world where things happen that we really can't stand and we lose things that we love. And, you know, that's just how it is. That's sort of a paraphrase of uh, a, a 13th century teacher named Dogen, uh, A. H. Dogen, who says, flowers fall though we love them and weeds grow though we hate them. That's just the way it is. For me, that's a great uh, uh, comment on what a Zen life feels like. Hmm. I really appreciated the, well, I'm going to use my own language here. This is yeah, sort of what please. I what I say to people is that I think pra the practice in life is actually quite countercultural. I use that same phrase. Yeah. And I've used it for decades. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a member of the counterculture in the, the 60s. <laughs> yeah. And it, it feels funny in a way to say it because, of course, if you just want to say, if you just want to talk about religion or whatever, it's, of course, that's quite mainstream. Mm hmm. But to actually sit and to practice, uh, you know, what's offered, whether it's in this or Christianity or Islam, like to really try to go into what is this? Yeah. Um, because I think each of the, you know, all of the traditions have a have a way into something that is much larger than just your own ego. Yeah, yeah. I think countercultural is a great word for this um, because it really does undermine the way that most people think of life, you know, that I'm going to get all this stuff and I'm going to be successful and I'm going to be happy and I'm never going to die. You know, I, I think that is the delusion that we're all taught uh, in this culture anyway. And yeah, it's, it's just to undermine that. It's pretty radical. It's, it's, and I think this goes back to why not everybody sticks with it. But it's so interesting that you you say that because I feel like some of what is going on in sort of more popular conversations about meditation is if you meditate, you will be more successful at work. If you meditate, you will – which I, I don't – I think is wrong, actually. I, mm. I actually think you probably, probably will be more successful at work. But it does feel like there's a mainstream conversation about meditation that is very object oriented, very mm -hmm. um, sort of materially focused. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Um, in, when I was working for the uh, mindfulness center at UMass, a, a term came out, and here's a, a really difficult, disturbing term. Uh, some people in the world are teaching something that's called mech mindfulness. And it's, a, oh, it's a form of mindfulness that is completely outcome oriented. And, and so, you know, so, and this, and it fits pop culture really perfectly, you know, like a box and it's lid, as we say, it's, it's, uh, you know, if, if you practice mindfulness meditation, you will be more successful. Uh, you'll um, make more money you'll cure all of your diseases, you'll be healthy. And as I said before, I think that's accompanied by a delusion that you'll never die. You know, that there's, if you take it out to its ultimate place. And, right. and, and I think that's what people um, think that they're longing for. My experience with getting to know people who really practice seriously for a long time is that what we're really longing for is to have our hearts touched and opened by the life that we're experiencing right now. So there's no, um, 
there's no outcome that's ever permanent. And, you know, and, oh, and when I worked at the Center for Mindfulness, I'd see this all the time because the people that I worked with were very careful to not make things outcome oriented. But we were in a university medical school, research was being done. It was inevitable that there'd be a drift in the direction of outcomes. And people would come in who had tried everything and were desperate and they wanted particular outcomes. And I would always say to them right from the beginning, uh, even when I was just starting out as a teacher of mindfulness, that you might not get what you think you've come for, but you will have a different relationship to your suffering. And, and I think that's another way of, to, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I th and, and people would, would hear that and go, and they'd nod and they'd go, uh-huh. <laughs> and then these programs, mindfulness-based stress reduction, were uh, eight weeks long. People would come once a week uh, for a class and then practice at home for an hour a day, which is a lot of practice, really. Yeah, that is a lot of practice. Yeah, and you know, I don't think they'd all practice for an hour a day, right. but, but what, what would happen as the weeks would go on is that people would begin to understand that there was something else they were learning, not just, I'm going to meditate and get this thing, but, oh, I could actually live my life differently. And by the eighth yeah. week, people would say things like that. You know, like they would say, I have cancer, but I no longer think of myself as a person with cancer. I can roll with things day to day in a way that I wasn't able to before. They could actually tolerate suffering in a new way. And this would happen no matter what people had come in with. And there would be people, there are always a small percentage of people who were really disappointed because they didn't cure their high blood pressure, or they didn't cure their cancer, or that, you know, whatever they'd come in for. Right. Um, but, but it, it so it, it always amazed me um, that that lesson could be taught. And some of the things that I learned at the Center for Mindfulness about teaching meditation, I brought into my Zen teaching, uh, that, you know, this kind of uh, clarity that I could use ordinary language, and not use specialized Buddhist terms to explain concepts that are really hard to understand with the discursive mind, people just really would absorb them if I could find a way to talk to people in the language that they were already using to talk to themselves. Uh, that, that was, you know, the guy who started mindfulness-based stress reduction, John Kabat-Zinn, who was my first mentor there. Uh, he, he was really a genius in that respect. He would take, he, he studied originally uh, Korean Zen and then ended up going uh, to be a student of Vipassana, um, Buddhist practice, but he he uh, he used a lot of Buddhist concepts, but translated them into modern English vernacular, modern American vernacular, and uh, and it, it's kind of sweet to to be able to be that flexible and not be tied down to trying to translate Pali and Sanskrit terms, uh, just to find a way to really be ordinary. Which to me is also what Zen's about. Zen looks really. Uh, romantic, as I said before, you know, there's incense and bells and drums and chanting and bowing and robes and all this stuff. But ultimately, I think at its base, it's just just being very ordinary. You know, that this is what's here now. My legs hurt. How am I going to be with this? I have a headache. How am I going to be with that? And how is this not a problem? How is this just the condition of my life right now in this moment? Uh, so, so this is how. Uh, I learned to teach through both through my own Zen teacher's instructions and also through this modern, I call it the modern mindfulness movement, 
um, because I don't really think it's truly secular. There, there's a lot of spiritual and religious aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would pick that up, you know, I, and I think that's because I couldn't help teaching it that way. Right. And I used to mentor lots of people myself, and there, there was often a dividing line, people who were doing this because they wanted to help people stop suffering. And then there were people who got that stopping suffering wasn't really the aim. The aim was learning to uh, open to the way things are, which includes suffering, but it also includes joy and delight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have this uh, great story <laughs> about um, noticing an iguana, and you're on this uh, this river trip in Costa Rica, I think. And it, it actually reminded me, uh, I'll let you get to the story in a minute, but I, it reminded me of my own, my own sort of iguana story. I, uh-huh. I, was, I was on a 30-day retreat, and I was about 14 days in, 15 days in, and I was having a terrible time. And I went in for an interview uh, with the Zen master, and uh, I was just mad, and I cursed him out, and he threw me out of the interview room. And I went outside uh, at the next break, and I was just debating whether I was going to leave or not. And I was just standing by this tree, this little tree. And all of a sudden, I noticed this bug. <laughs> and I was like, oh, look at that bug. And, and then I noticed another bug. And then I noticed the tree was full of bugs, not in an infestation way, but just that there's a lot of bugs out there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, my mind has slowed down so much. I normally never see these bugs. <laughs> and uh, I went, walked back into the Dharma Hall and sat for the other two weeks and everything was, you know, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, in this story about the iguana, maybe you can tell the story, but it, it, it was a great way for you to talk about the Dharma gates. And, yes, yes, yes. You know, sometimes I think even when we deal with the Dharma gates or we deal with, we talk about the teachings are infinite, we still are approaching them in, in a material way. Mm-hmm. Like, how am I ever going to learn an infinite number of teachings or how many, you know? So I don't know if I can ask you to tell that story a little bit or talk about the Dharma gates. You know, our translation of that line in um, Boundless Way Zen, which is the uh, group that I'm part of, uh, is uh, Dharma gates are boundless. It's Mm. like there's no limit to them, which implies infinite, like in your translation. Uh, but right. it, but it's really like every single thing we encounter is demonstrating the teachings of Buddhism to us. But because we're looking for something special, we don't see it, so we're we're blind to it. My my teacher James Ford uh, tells a story about sitting at a retreat, very similar to your experience with the bugs, uh, sitting at a retreat and looking at a bowl of soup, and suddenly a cabbage leaf floated up to the top, and he really saw the cabbage leaf. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's like one of those. Wow, there are a lot of bugs here. Uh, yeah. you know, I really saw a cabbage leaf, and he. So we joke uh, about cabbage leaf experiences that we're having constantly, and 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 we we keep excluding things. A cabbage leaf couldn't be it. A bug couldn't be it. I was walking down the street uh, today and saw this beautiful green glistening thing. In the in, in, on the sidewalk, and and I thought, whoa, what is that? And when I looked more closely, it was a um, a trash bag with a bottle 
that somebody had thrown out on the side of the road. <laughs> you know, it's like, so, you, so the mind goes, trash bag, bottle, that's not it. But yeah. for, for just a second, I didn't have the limitation of my, uh, of my category. You know, the, the, the discursive mind's always making categories of things. And most things fall into the category of that couldn't be it. And, and the teaching of the iguana, which I'm really delighted that you like that, uh, was um, one of the ways I found to talk about this because it's, it, it, we really are surrounded. Everything we hear and see and smell and taste and touch, everything we think and feel is what we're looking for, what we're longing for. But we, we keep uh, dismissing those things because they don't fit into the category that our minds have made. Uh, you know, this this couldn't be it because it's ugly or it's disturbing. So even pain or, you know, a feeling of disgust or that that's still the Dharma manifesting itself. That's one of the gates that reveals the Dharma to us. So in the story, um, you know, I'm lucky enough, I get to travel around and teach in other places. And, and I was in Costa Rica with my husband on this boat tour. And the guy who was taking us on the tour was kind of a meditation master himself. He's a very sweet man. He was very calm and and he had all you know these American tourists with him taking them on this tour of a, a, a boat tour in the rainforest. And he just kept pointing out all these different flora and fauna, the you know, the the wonderful things that were there. And we were going, ooh, ah. And then he stopped the boat in front of a tree and he said, so I want everyone to just pause and be quiet and not move and just focus your eyes in a very open way on this tree and let me know when you see the iguana. <laughs> and everybody on the boat, uh, you know, it, it was like, we, everybody looked, There's no, there was no iguana in the tree. It was absolutely sure. We were all sure that there was no iguana there. And we, we but we all followed his instructions because he was quite charismatic. And we decided to just sit there. And of course, my husband and I were, were looked at each other and thought, wow, this guy's giving us meditation instructions. <laughs> and then we, we uh, one by one, everybody saw it. There was an iguana on the tree, but it, it was um, not clearly visible. And again, because of the way we make categories in our mind, we had just seen shape and color. And then it had coalesced. It had been there the whole time. And people had these little mini enlightenment experiences all over the boat. People were going, oh, oh, I see it, oh. And it was just so sweet and so delightful. So I turned that into a story for uh, a Buddhist magazine. And just to explain this particular teaching that the Dharma really is everywhere and that we can experience it for ourselves if we stop putting it into a limited category of experience. So that open quality of just receiving everything, uh, that's partly what Zen practice and mindfulness too at its best teaches. Mm. Now you co-edited this book. Um, it's called The Book of Mu, mm -hmm. uh, Essential Writings of Zen's Most Important Koans. It's one of the first uh, koans that a lot of people receive when they're beginning their training. Yes. Um, why a whole book on one koan and you know what's in mu for you that is so sort of critical and essential to i guess this you know this way of life 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what, one of the things that uh, I've been trained to teach is koan practice. So koan practice is something that I've loved from the very first time I picked up a book of koans when I was a teenager. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but uh, there weren't that many books that had been published at that point. But there are these little funny stories that didn't seem to have a point to them, but they really grabbed me in some way. So when I first started officially learning about Zen from a, a real Zen teacher, uh, he started me on koans after I'd been practicing for maybe about um, eight or nine years. Uh, he first gave me what we used to call the who am I inquiry. We say that all koans kind of fall into two categories, either who am I or what is this? And so, so and, and in, I know in Korean Zen, uh, those two questions are often asked and in other religious traditions too. And you just stay with them until there's some kind of opening. So once I had some kind of opening, my first teacher gave me the koan mu. And then when I, and then I went on to other koans after that. When I first started studying with my second teacher, James Ford, uh, he wanted me to start where I'd left off with my first teacher, but I wanted to go back to mu just to see how he would teach it. And mu is kind of the root of all the other koans. It's, uh, it's what we call an entry koan or an opening koan. And it's, it's got a, a sweet little story that's connected to it, which I think, um, at least the way I teach it, is essential to understand that one of the implicit teachings of the mu koan is this same teaching that you and I have been talking about, that everything is constantly demonstrating the awakened nature, that the Dharma is shining through, everything shines with its own light, as we say. And that's a really hard concept to understand intellectually. But, you know, when we see the iguana or the cabbage leaf or whatever, uh, the little bugs crawling in the tree, we, um, we have this real felt sense of it. It's, a, it's a, a, an authentic experience. It's not just a theory anymore. And so in the story, um, in, which happens in Tang Dynasty, China, it's a legendary story. Who knows if this ever really happened? A student goes to a teacher and asks um, if a dog has the Buddha nature, the Buddha nature being the awakened nature, or you know, uh, does, can a dog reveal the Dharma, as we've been talking about. And in China in that time, anyone who was a Buddhist would have heard the teaching that everything is the Buddha nature. But, uh, but this guy comes to a very famous Zen master whose name was Zhao Zhou, and he probably only gets this one question. It would be like somebody coming to the Dalai Lama, and you only get one question. And he asks this question, does a dog have the Buddha nature? So the first thing that I do with students is ask them, why do you think he's asking that question? What's going on? And people will personalize that and say, well, well this is what I really want to know. You know, this teaching sounds really great, but really? Could this be true that the Dharma is in everything, that everything has the awakened nature. I don't trust that. I don't believe it. And then the, the teacher should say, yes, that should be the answer because that's the conventional teaching. But instead, he uses, in Chinese, it's the word wu. Uh, and in Japanese, uh, which is where my, um, my tradition comes from, it's the word mu. And it doesn't really mean no, but it, it kind of means not, like not this or or you're heading in the wrong direction. 
And so it's a very um, uh, pithy little dialogue, you know, help me with my misunderstanding and no. <laughs> it's like, no, I won't. And so, so then we, we use that word uh, as an entry point to discover this truth uh, ourselves. And, and we'll just keep saying to people over and over again, what is Mu? What is Mu? They'll come in. And then we have a whole technology of uh, koan, we call them checking questions around Mu that help broaden, once people have an understanding of what Mu is, and I can't really tell you on, in this interview mm -hmm. what the answer that would be, obviously, but um, people have very personal uh, openings to, to, yeah. to this, as you know. And, and, and we, you know, we expand and deepen and help people and then take them to the very brink of, uh, of kind of conventional understanding about what it means to be human. And then once people break through that, uh, then there's thousands of other koans in the system in which I teach that just keep opening and broadening and deepening. And, and so um, this was an idea that James Ford had. Let's reach out to a whole bunch of people who teach koans and ask them for their take on this koan, which is almost always the first koan that people use in most systems of koan practice. And we got the, we got like 50 responses from people right. and they were, you know, they, they ranged from uh, not that insightful to really beautiful, deep stuff. And so we, we selected a few and we also went back to, uh, to traditional teachings around Mu because koan practice really didn't develop until the Sung dynasty um, in China. And, and it, in most of the koan stories are probably made up, but there's this tradition that got uh, um, carried over into Jap Japan and Korea uh, of koan practice. And, and so, um, so the, there were, there's so many different takes on it. Traditionally, the very first people who started talking about working with Mu uh, all the way to modern, uh, modern teachings. And, and we just um, put them together and, and uh, people have really responded to the book. I wouldn't say it's a bestseller because, again, there's not many people <laughs> who, who are working Nine on cons. Yeah. yeah. But, but interestingly, um, it really does touch people. And I think a lot of people who work with cons uh, have bought it to use as a, a kind of source of inspiration, which is how James and I were thinking of it. Um, and, and it's kind of cool, you know, what, whenever I have a, a student who wants to start working on koans and sometimes they'll want to do who am I or what is this, but sometimes they'll want to do this traditional koan mu. And, and I, I'll, um, I'll even take people who come from other traditions and other koan traditions too, and ask them to review mu with me. And there are some people, and I'm one of them who keep going back to mu again and again and again. It, it feels like the teachings that emanate from it are, well, infinite, as you said before, uh, and it never ends. And I'll, I'll just mention there was um, uh, one teacher that we reached out to uh, who died recently, Edo Shimano Roshi, was a Japanese teacher who lived in America for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, his reputation's been a bit tarnished by uh, some stuff, but which is very sad. But at the time that we were publishing the book, uh, that news w hadn't broken yet. So he was one. Of, we included him, uh, and uh, and I, I had a back and forth email with him, you know, because I'd found this beautiful 
essay he'd written about Mu probably 20 years ago and asked if we could republish it in the book. And he wrote back and he said, I still don't really understand what Mu is. So if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> I would like to give a talk on it, have it recorded and transcribed. Would you consider using that? <laughs> I'm thinking, yes, I definitely would consider using that. So the, the essay from him in the book is really quite beautiful. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, people can have insights into Mu, into non-duality, into koans, like Edo Shimano, and still not completely have integrated what it means to be a human being. And I think that's another pointer to the way of life that's possible in Zen, that we, we never finish. My first teacher used to say, uh, you don't just get enlightened and then retire to Florida. You know, you, yeah. th this is yeah. a constant lifelong till the very last breath, um, a, a, a capacity that we're developing to continue to be astonished, to continue to, um, to learn more and more what it means to be a human being and really to know less and less, to be sure of less and less, and to really meet the world in this kind of uh, open and innocent way. Um, so, uh, so, you know, Edo Shimano, for example, and I could give you a list of probably about 20 other Zen teachers whose reputations have been tarnished, um, still have a lot to offer uh, as long as they don't think that they're finished with their training. And I never got that feeling from Edo, that he felt mm -hmm. finished. I really heard echoes of Mu mm -hmm. in this essay that you wrote in the last, or the winter issue of Buddha Dharma, A Woman of Zen. And I just want to read a little passage sure. here where it says, a student asked, can a woman attain enlight uh, awakening? <laughs> the teacher said, no. <laughs> Move. Yeah, right, you know? right, right. <laughs> after, uh, after the gasps uh, subsided, he said, and a man can't either. No man, no woman, no attaining. Mm -hmm. And as I continued my journey into the heart of Zen practice, I held this story close, wanting to be a good Zen student. I did my best to ignore the differences in gender that were so obvious and strong in my life. I worked hard to view gender as empty, but as time went on, I had to admit this view was limited and not really useful in helping me solve the koan of being a woman in the world of Zen. And then you, skipping forward a little bit, you said, seeing into the emptiness of everything is only half of the path of awakening. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, given the context of where we are in, you know, this nation, the United mm -hmm. States, uh, with all we're dealing with with me too and well just so much really um but also what is what is this life uh what is this half the path of awakening mm -hmm. what is there what's the koan yeah you know what, what i just flashed on and i hadn't thought of this before was the um the teaching of the ox herding pictures uh, mm -hmm. which you know i'm sure you're familiar with uh, where you start out looking for the ox and then you finally find the ox, and then you know the ox is enlightenment, and then everything drops away. And then at the end of that sequence, the last picture uh, is called "Going to the Marketplace with Bliss Bestowing Hands." And the 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 teaching for me is that uh, a life in Zen is not accomplishing anything. So this goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. It's not. Um, 
attaining enlightenment, seeing that the world is empty of form, you know, no man, no woman, right, all that stuff. But actually seeing that we can simultaneously, we can integrate these different views. So there really was an iguana up in that tree that wasn't the same as the branches of the tree. Things really show up as they are. You know, the cabbage leaf floating up was a cabbage leaf. The bugs in the tree were little bugs. That there's something about the way that there's no you or me, and there definitely is you and me. And there's some way that that no you and me and that definitely you and me come together in a life where uh, we're not longing for things to drop away, but we're owning at the same time the unique particularity of things. There's one of the koans we use as a training koan after people have passed through Mu initially. Uh, in our system, we go through Mu a couple of times. We leave it behind and then come back mm -hmm. to it and then leave it behind and come back to it. Um, it's it's a, a quote from some old Chinese text and it's, a thousand mountains are covered with snow. Why is this one peak not white? Right? Mm -hmm. So the there's this quality we can open to, oh, everything is it. And at the same time, everything is completely unique. And it's not one or the other. The, the discursive mind can't, uh, wants to settle in one or the other. So we have an awakening to emptiness or thusness of shunyata. Uh, in that moment when things drop away, um, in a, in a moment or two later, we'll try to cling to that as an idea or a story that we tell ourselves about what happened. And, and we won't um, be able to integrate that into our ordinary lives. You know, the, the, so the, um, this is why it's so important, I think, to have a teacher who knows about the integration of form and emptiness and isn't stuck in emptiness themselves. Uh, it's it's so easy, it's so delicious to be in the world of emptiness, but it's not that useful. It's really hard to fill out your income tax in the world of emptiness, you know, and uh, make supper for the kids and, and uh, drive your car. So there's some way that we can live a life where all these things come together into this going to the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands and accepting that even when our minds close down again, which they inevitably will, that's also a form of the awakened heart manifesting itself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Melissa Mjosen Blacker encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching and retreat schedule by visiting her website, melissablacker.com, or the website of Boundless Way Temple in Worcester, Mass., where she serves as resident teacher and priest. That address is worcesterzen.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org slash videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.